Good morning. If you're a visitor here this morning, my name is Jeff Chang. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you after the service. We're so glad that you've joined us this morning. Well, Adoniram and Ann Judson were some of the first missionaries ever sent out from America in the year 1812. Uh, Adoniram had pressed the Congregationalists for many years to organize a board of missions uh, in order to be able to send them out uh, for missions to, to Southeast Asia and South Asia. So finally, after many years, they organized, raised the money, sent them out, and, uh, and the Judsons were headed up to join up with William Carey uh, there in India. Uh, William Carey was a Baptist. Judson was a Congregationalist, meaning that he believed in and practiced infant baptism. Uh, but on his way there, sort of as he was getting ready to defend himself and his position uh, to William Carey, he began to study his Greek New Testament. He began to think about, how am I going to translate this Greek word baptizo? Uh, when I start to translate the scriptures into this new language. Uh, he could not find any justification for that word meaning to sprinkle. Uh, and even more than that, he began to wrestle with the nature of the church. Is the church for believers only? Or should the children of believers also be allowed to become members of the church through baptism? The more Judson studied this, it began to dawn on him, oh no, I've become a Baptist. <laughs> uh, I've become convinced of the Baptist position on, on all this, on, on who should be baptized and on what the church should be, should be like. He talked with his wife, Anne, about this, and she was appalled. Because if they became Baptists, that would mean turning their back on all of their financial support, all of their friends and their family, all while living in some distant foreign land. And even so, as Adoniram and Anne studied this together, both of them became more and more convinced from Scripture uh, that, that this is what the Bible taught, that, that, this, that the Baptist position on these things was correct. Writing to her parents a few months later, Anne confided, We knew that it would wound and grieve our dear Christian friends in America, that we would lose their approval and esteem. We thought it probable that the commissioners would refuse to support us. And what was more distressing than anything, we knew that we must be separated from our missionary associates and go alone to some heathen land. These things were very trying to us and caused our hearts to bleed with anguish. We felt that we had no home in this world and no friend but each other. As their ship approached India, uh, the Judsons felt like they were helpless. They were stuck in this difficult situation. Would they take the expedient route and just sort of ignore their consciences, ignore these newfound convictions? Or would they trust God, even in this desperate situation? What would you have done? You know, for some of us, I don't think we have to imagine very hard what we would have done. Because at one point or another, perhaps you found yourself in a situation like that. You know, and whether, whether if you haven't, uh, sooner or later, I trust you will find yourself in a situation like that. Will, will you choose expediency or will you trust God? 
This morning, we are continuing through 1 Samuel. Uh, feel free in your Bibles to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13, uh, page 234 in the Pew Bibles. The last time we saw the transition from Samuel to Saul, the people of Israel wanted a king like the nations. They wanted a king to rule over them, forgetting that God was their king. And so God, in his kindness and patience, he gives them what they want. Uh, through Samuel, God anoints Saul to be their king, and he's tall, and he's handsome, he's a fierce warrior. Happily ever after, right? No, not quite. Today, Israel is going to find themselves stuck. Well, Israel and Saul, they're going to find themselves stuck in a hopeless, helpless situation. And it's in this situation that we're going to see exactly what kind of king Saul is. So again, 1 Samuel 13, we're going to be looking at both chapters 13 and 14. There's a lot to read here. I'm not going to be able to read it all. Have the Bible, your Bibles open in front of you if you can, and that will help you to follow along. But really, these two chapters provide a, a nice snapshot of Saul's reign. You know, and we're going to learn that as powerful and effective as Saul may be, he is not able to save God's people. Uh, and yet, even amid Saul's failures, God is powerful to save his own people. So I pray that even as we look at this, that we will walk out of here with our trust set fully, not on any worldly leader, but on God alone. All right, so point number one, if you're taking notes, our dire condition. Point number one, our dire condition. And here, 1 Samuel 13 opens with Saul assembling an army. We see there in verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. Saul has been chosen as king, especially to deal with the Philistine threat to the west, and now he's preparing. Uh, Jonathan here, we're going to find out, is Saul's son. He is one of his commanders. Uh, and it seems that at this point, Saul is assembling an army. He's not marching out in open war against the Philistines. Uh, there is this sort of uneasy coexistence with the Philistines, even while the Philistines are oppressing the Israelites. But we see in verse 3 that Jonathan strikes the first blow. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. So there Jonathan strikes the first blow. He defeats this garrison, and, and, and Saul now calls, all right, Israel, it's time. Time to march out to war. Time to gather. And we also see in verse 5 that the Philistines are getting ready for war. Verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. The Philistines here are turning out en masse. Uh, this is now open war between the Philistines and Israel. They are, the Israelites are outnumbered, clearly. Uh, the Philistines have the technological superiority of chariots and, and horsemen. You know, they've got, they've got the Navy. They've got the Air Force, right? They've got the tanks. Israel is in trouble. And if you, if you keep looking down in, in chapter 13, go down to verse 17. Uh, 1 Samuel 13, verse 17. Here we see the Philistines' strategy. Right? In 17, 18, we see raiders 
coming out of their camp, um, they're not marching out in open war. Rather, they've, they've set up a, a garrison at Mi'kmash, like kind of the fortress, and from that base of operations, they are sending out raiders to the north and to the south and to the east to raid the Israelite villages and farms. Uh, they're trying to cut off Saul's supplies. They're trying to burn down villages to discourage the Israelites. You know, this is a war of attrition. Uh, they're going to grind Israel down until Saul has no choice but to surrender. Well, not only that, but look at 1319. And now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for the sharpening of axes and for the setting of goads. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan and his son had them. So talk about a desperate situation. I mean, the Israelites, uh, I mean, how do you fight a war without any weapons, right? Uh, the Philistines control all the blacksmiths of the land. You know, if you want to oppress a people, make sure that they don't have any weapons. That's an easy way to go about that. Well, given this situation, look at how the people of Israel respond. Look, look back at chapter 13, verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. You know, Saul has, has blown the trumpet. He has called all the Israelites to himself but they're terrified. They don't have any weapons. They see that Saul's 3,000 is vastly outnumbered. And so they act shamefully. They, they hide in caves and rocks and holes and tombs and cisterns like, like rats. Uh, in verse 7, some of the Israelites even flee the promised land. They, they cross the Jordan River, go east. As far as those guys are concerned... Philistines, you can have the land. You know, it's yours. We're out of here. We'll see later in chapter 14 that there were some Israelites who had even defected, who had joined up with the Philistines. And whoever did come to Saul, they came trembling. Things are not looking good for Saul. Things are not looking good for Israel. Saul is in a desperate situation. By all human accounts, Things are lost. You know, it's interesting here, the language of the Philistines being like the sand on the seashore. That's language that we've seen before, if you've read through the Bible. It was used, to the, it was used back in Joshua 11 when Joshua defeated the Canaanite kings and they gathered like the sand on the seashore. It was used when Gideon defeated the Midianites in Judges 7, when the Midianites gathered like the sand on the seashore. It was used way back in Genesis 22 when God promised to Abraham that Israel, that his descendants, 
would be like the sand on the seashore. Even in this desperate situation, there are these reminders that God is doing something, that God is up to something. Back in 1 Samuel 7, God defeated the Philistines under the leadership of Samuel, the prophet. And now Samuel has commanded Saul not to do anything until he comes and offers a sacrifice. You know, even though Saul was the king, he was under a higher authority. He, he could not just unilaterally start a, a holy war himself. No, God had to authorize this war, and he would do so through his prophet, Samuel. So, so look at verse 8, chapter 13. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines were had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord God commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Have you ever heard the term, the tyranny of the urgent? Right? Uh, that, that's what Saul is feeling right here in verse 8. Samuel is delayed. The forces with him are, are melting away, and the Philistines are assembling. Saul feels like he can't wait any longer. He needs to authorize this war against the Philistines. He needs to show the people that, that God is on their side. All he can see is the tyranny of the urgent. And so Saul takes charge. He, he refuses to wait for Samuel any longer. He offers the sacrifice himself. Hey, look, everyone, God is on our side. But as God would have it, just as he's wrapping up, Samuel shows up. You know, I, I can't help but see the similarities between uh, Saul and Adam back in Genesis 3, right? Samuel confronts Saul. What have you done? And Saul, just like Adam, he blames others. He blames Samuel for being late. He blames the people for melting away from, from fleeing from him. He blames the Philistines. He basically says, it's not my fault. I don't have a choice. Friends, that's never true. We always have a choice whether or not we sin. We, we may not see the way out, but, but, but it's there. The choice is there. Even in his answer, you see that Saul knew that what he did was wrong. Verse 12, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. 
There, there was something in his conscience. He knew that he shouldn't do this, but he forced himself to do it because he saw no other way. Saul will do whatever it takes, even disobey God, in order to, to have a chance at defeating the Philistines. Well, Samuel makes clear in verse 13 that Saul disobeyed the command of the Lord. As much as Saul was trying to preserve his own kingdom, this chapter ends with Saul's kingdom taken away from him by God. He's still the king, but his kingdom will not endure. And now the people are scattered, they're trembling, they're hiding. From the 3,000 down to 600, this is the desperate condition of Israel. And again, I ask you, friends, have you ever been brought to the place where you feel just utterly helpless? Right? Um, Perhaps some of you are feeling that way here this morning. You know, health issues that have come up in your life and doctors just don't know what to do. Uh, You're watching your 401k dwindle as your retirement approaches. You feel stuck in a dead-end career feel stuck in your singleness. You feel stuck in a lifeless marriage. You keep sharing the gospel with loved ones, and they keep rejecting you again and again. And and that relationship hangs on by a thread. You know, whether or not you've ever felt utterly helpless, here's the truth about our condition. At the end of the day, all of us, are utterly dependent upon God for everything. All that we have comes from him. None of us are self-made men and women. None of us sustain our own existence. At any second, disaster can come and take away all that we have, take away our health, our abilities, our securities. You know, we fool ourselves if we think that we just sustain ourselves by our own sheer willpower. No, we are creatures. We're not gods. We are made to be dependent on God. We exist in this fallen world under God's curse. And therefore, every blessing we enjoy is a gift, a gift from God. And anything that God takes away actually belongs to him anyways. If God ever brings you to a situation where you finally feel helpless, finally feel like you need God. Know that he is finally opening your eyes to your true condition. Any sense of self-sufficiency that that we have is, in fact, an illusion. If Israel thought that, that she could live in the promised land because of her own military might and diplomacy and king, they were wrong. No, if we think we can flourish in this world apart from God, we also are wrong. This is why, when we, when we don't realize this, this is why when we come to that desperate situation, we compromise, right? We begin to think, I better take matters into my own hands. We, we, we begin to think our, our prosperity, our security comes from ourselves. And so when trouble comes, like Saul, we compromise God's commands. We, we like Israel, we hide, we flee, we defect, We stop giving to the church. We begin hoarding all that we have. We stop sharing the gospel in fear of rejection. We indulge in lustful entertainments, thinking, I deserve this. We begin to think that living in sin 
is normal and reasonable. Sin always looks reasonable when we are staring at our problems, when our perspective is dominated by the tyranny of the urgent. But as soon as, by God's grace, we can begin to see God clearly, when we can see that God is infinitely bigger than whatever problem we face, as soon as the fear of God enters into our hearts, then everything changes. It's like Samuel shows up and he rebukes us for our unbelief and our disobedience. What, what before seemed so reasonable, of course you would act this way. No, we realize, oh, that is wicked. That is unbelief. That is disobedience. Friends, as, as those who are so often consumed by the tyranny of the urgent, who, who think that we can take matters into our own hands and make things right, no, we, we need to thank God if he ever brings us to the point of feeling helpless, feeling like we actually need him. <laughs> because that is actually our true condition. We need God. We cannot save ourselves. It, it, lean into that sense of helplessness, right? Confess your need of God. Cry out to him. What you need more than anything else at that moment is a view of God that is bigger than those troubles that you face. Well, this is the situation that Israel found herself in. And praise God, God is bigger than any desperate condition that we might ever face. So look at 1 Samuel chapter 14. I'll read starting in verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come. Let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Here, so chapter 14 opens with Saul and his depleted forces. Uh, it appears that in verse 3, this is really interesting, Saul brought along Ahijah, who comes from the disgraced house of Eli. You'll remember this in the earlier sermons that I preached in 1 Samuel. Uh, Ahijah was a nephew of Ichabod. It's interesting that the narrator goes out of his way to mention Ichabod. Right? Ichabod means without glory or, or, or the glory has departed. Um, with, you know, when the house of Eli fell, Ichabod was born. And this is a reminder that the house of Eli has been disgraced. It seems that with Samuel's departure, Saul has brought on Ahijah as a replacement. Uh, he's going to provide, Ahijah is going to provide religious endorsement to Saul's reign, even though Samuel made it so clear that God has rejected Saul. Just, it's just interesting to see Saul manipulating the religious system of his day. Well, Saul is sitting around, but Jonathan is tired of waiting. They go over to the Philistine garrison. Look down at verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord by saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, 
do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet, and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Uh, Jonathan has got to be one of my favorite characters in the whole Bible. Uh, I mean, here is a true kingly character, right? Uh, here is one with a simple, unshakable trust in God. In referring to the Philistines as these uncircumcised, uh, what he's referring to is the fact that the people of Israel are God's covenant people. Uh, they were the ones who had received the sign of circumcision, the sign that they belonged to God. They were in covenant relationship with God. But notice that Jonathan doesn't presume on God's help, right? Verse 6, it, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Right? He, Jonathan knows God doesn't have to do anything for Israel. They certainly don't deserve it. And yet Jonathan clearly hopes that God will, so much so that he's willing to go over there. And despite how dire the situation is, despite the fact that they don't have any weapons, they're down to 600 men, Jonathan knows that God can do anything. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, by many or by few. God is not limited by Israel's fewness. It actually makes no difference to God how dire our condition is. He is able to bring about his salvation. Well, Jonathan and his armor bearer go over. Jonathan asks for a sign. And the test is, if they say to us, you know, come on up and we'll teach you a lesson. That's the sign that God is calling them. You know, it's, it's interesting that, Saul, that Jonathan chooses the sign of, like, aggression, right? Uh, to charge into the battle. That's, that's the sign that he's supposed to go. And that's exactly what happens. The Philistines say, yeah, come on up. I'll teach you a lesson. Jonathan, Jonathan says, all right, it's, it's time to go. God has called us. And so he goes, and he immediately strikes down 20. And, and that's, that's impressive, right? He's a mighty warrior. His armor bearer is behind him. But then, really, God steps in. God does the rest. I mean, he brings about a panic among the Philistines. This earthquake comes. The Philistines are in confusion. God has, is bringing salvation to his people. Well, I'm not going to read the rest of it, but in verses 16 through 20, you see here that Saul begins to observe, like, hey, something's going on here. Saul sees the Philistines dispersing from their camp. He finds out that Jonathan is missing. 
And so he, he again asks Ahijah, okay, bring out the ark. Let's authorize this war. And it seems like even before Ahijah's finished, he's like, okay, let's get to it. And they'll re- release the men. And so he releases the soldiers to join in the battle. Now, it seems like Saul didn't want to miss out a chance to get some credit for this victory. I think that's what's going on there. So now Saul's army joins into the battle. And then in verse 21, here it is. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines, these are the defectors, um, before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Verse 22, likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. And so the Lord saved Israel that day. I love this because not only does God bring salvation by saving them from the Philistines, God saves Israel from their own fearful hearts. He saves Israel from their own treacherous hearts, right? And these Israelites are all rallied to join in the fight. You know, I love the contrast between chapters 13 and 14. Israel was in her most desperate situation, no weapons, 600 people barely. You know, I I don't know of any other instance in the Bible quite like that. And yet, even so, as desperate as they were, God is not one bit phased by that at all, right? God is not one bit hindered by many or by few. God brought about a salvation, an overwhelming salvation. You know, even as we see our condition as being dire and helpless, at the very same time, like Jonathan, we have to be those people who believe that God is not one bit hindered by our situation, by our desperate condition. Whatever we lack, God is fully able to provide. God's, and really what this is teaching us is that God's salvation always comes unilaterally. It comes entirely from him. God is powerful. He, he, his sovereign grace alone is able to save. Now that's how God works salvation. And by the way, did I say this? Point number two, how God saves. This is point number two, how God saves. Um, God saves unilaterally. He saves sovereignly. That's what we're seeing here. The Bible reveals to us that our most desperate need is the sin of our hearts. Uh, We are those who have all rebelled against God. We have all chosen to go our own way. Like Saul, we have compromised what we know to be true and right. We have chosen to do what is expedient. Like Israel, we are those who have rejected God's promises and fled and defected. In doing this, we haven't just broken some abstract rules. No, we have sinned against God the high king of the universe. We have mutinied. We have rebelled against him. And for that, we deserve his everlasting wrath. And in this condition, we are helplessly stuck. That's how dire our situation is. Every single one of us. And yet, God in his mercy sent his faithful son, Jesus Christ, into this world. Jesus has come not just to give us a helping hand, not just to encourage us, help us along. No, Jesus came 
to save. Jesus came to save. He came to fulfill everything that we ever needed to be reconciled to God. He, he lived a perfect life of obedience. And then he took that life and he offered it as a sacrifice to God in the place of sinners. Sinners like you. Sinners like me. The punishment that we deserved fell on Jesus. And then on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead in victory over our sin. And now that perfect righteousness that he accomplished is held out as a gift for all those who will repent of their sins and trust in him. Friends, how does God's salvation come to us today? Not by anything that we bring to the table. Anything that we're, no, we're hiding in the caves and the tombs and the rocks and the, and the ground. We, we are not Jonathan. No, we are like Saul. We are like the Israelites. But Jesus, like Jonathan, steps out in boldness and accomplishes all that we ever need to be reconciled to God forever. The story of the Bible shows that this is how God saves us. Unilaterally, effectively, decisively. And all this points to the finished work of Christ. So if you're visiting with us this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, perhaps you've come, you know, realizing that you need some help in life, realizing that you need some good teaching perhaps, hoping to find some good morals that we can instill in you. You know, I'm here to tell you that your situation is far worse than you ever imagined. You are dead in your sins. You are headed for eternal wrath. And yet there is a God who raised his son from the dead, and he can raise your dead heart also. And he will do so if you will repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. If you have any questions about what that means, please come talk to me after the service. I would love to help you think about what that means more fully. For my church family, you know, I love this picture of how God uses Jonathan to bring about this great victory because notice that this victory is not just the deliverance of, of Israel from the Philistine, but it's also, like I said, the, the mobilization of Israel, right? It's Israel now being set free from their fears and emboldened to join in the work of God. Now, as we follow Jesus Christ, our great Jonathan, uh, we are those who follow in, his, in the train of his victory. You know, friends, we have seen God do this work throughout church history. Uh, this is what we call revival. Um, what is a revival? Revival is, as Jonathan Edwards calls it, a surprising work of God. A surprising work of God. A, a particular supernatural season in the life of the church where God awakens his people to the gospel, where God brings about remarkable fruitfulness in their obedience and in their service, leading to the growth and the strengthening of the church and leading to the spread of the gospel among the lost. It's in these seasons of revival that we have seen the gospel go out in evangelism, in missions, in church planting, where we see the lost converted children professing faith in Christ. And God so often uses in these stories the most unlikeliest of people who are willing to step out in bold obedience. I, I, think, I think of that time in the medieval church steeped in corruption and false teaching. And then along comes this 
guilt-ridden monk, Martin Luther, who discovers justification by faith alone. And he begins to take a stand against the sale of salvation, the sale of indulgences that was going on in his day. And, and God uses that as a spark for the gospel to spread throughout Western Europe. I, I think of colonial America in the early 18th century, during a time when religion was in decline and nominalism reigned. And then God raises up this socially awkward, brainy preacher called Jonathan Edwards and this cross-eyed Anglican called George Whitfield. And through their preaching, it brings about this thing called the Great Awakening, where thousands and thousands throughout the colonies are converted. And they establish this vibrant, gospel-centered Christianity. I think of the Judsons refusing to compromise their newfound biblical convictions. And in their tireless and, and suffering and painful labors in Burma, they not only establish a gospel church among the Karen people, which exists down to our day, but they rally and unify all the Baptists in America to, to unite in a national body to support the cause of global missions around the world. I think of the church in China. Uh, after all the Western missionaries were kicked out in the 1950s because of the communist revolution. And then three decades later, later, the Westerners go back and they find that the underground church has not only survived, but they have multiplied. And now there are millions of Christians in China. Friends, during so many times when the church seems most dead and struggling, that's when God has worked his powerful hand through the bold witness of his servants. So I wonder, are you discouraged by the state of the church today? Are you discouraged by the reports of abuse and scandal? Are you discouraged by how those stories are being paraded before the world to our shame? Are you discouraged by the constant infighting and disunity? What about the state of our, even our own church here? Warnell Road Baptist Church. Are you discouraged by, by our lack of certain ministries? Are you discouraged by your, your own pastors and your own leaders, wishing that maybe we were better preachers or, or better leaders or whatever? Are you discouraged by how few people are being converted? I mean, I'm so thankful for, for transfer growth, right? I'm grateful for others, other Christians finding this church already converted making this their church home, that's wonderful. But don't you long to see non-Christians from the community converted to Jesus Christ? Don't you wish that baptismal was out here every single Sunday, the waters were stirring because people are being baptized, converted? And even more than all this, are you discouraged by the state of your own heart? Right? How, how worldly our thoughts are? how worldly our desires are, how easily we give in to sin, these respectable sins that we have in our lives. Are you discouraged by how dry and lifeless God's word seems to you when you get up to read in the morning? How, how ritualistic our worship can feel Sunday after Sunday. Friends, there's only one answer to all these problems. It is for God to revive his people. It is for God to, to supernaturally awaken us to the truths and the glories of the gospel. 
for God to instill in you and in us the same kind of simple and unshakable faith that Jonathan had. And regardless of what we think about what, what the broader, what's going on in the broader church or even our church here, our prayer for revival has to begin with each one of us individually, personally. Right? Friend, what difference would it make if you were awakened to God? What, what difference would it make in your struggling marriage? What difference would it make in your parenting? What difference would it make in you as a member of this church? If God intervened like this in your life, if God were to make you a Jonathan right here in this congregation and to lead us out of our holes and caves and tombs into the fight. Friends, every generation desperately needs God to intervene in the church, in our hearts, in the broader churches. Only God can do this. We, we can't manufacture this. So, so what do we do? When, when we look at what, what Jonathan did here and how God saved his people, what do we do if we so long for something like that in our midst today? We pray. We pray. We, we confess there's nothing we can do. God, we need you. We pray. A alongside the preaching of the gospel, the most important thing that we do as a church is that we pray. And we're not just praying for the lost though we are. We're praying also for ourselves. We're praying for our own hearts. We're praying that God would revive us. We're praying that God would revive our pastors. We don't need new pastors. We need revived pastors, awakened pastors, who can bring us God's word with hearts set on fire for him. Friends, if God were to bring about this kind of salvation here at Warnall, what wonderful things could he do here in this Brookside neighborhood, right here in, this, in Kansas City? What could he do through us to promote healthy churches throughout our state, throughout the Southern Baptist Convention? What could he do through us for the cause of Christ around the world? We're not a mega church. Our budget is tight. Your pastors are not, you know, John Piper is not here pastoring this church. And yet, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So brothers and sisters, pray. Pray that revival would begin even with you and that it would spread through our midst and beyond. Brothers and sisters, come to our midweek gatherings for prayer. And when you come to pray, come not just to any old prayer meeting. No, this is our lifeline. This is how anything, if anything is going to happen in this church, it's going to happen because we've prayed for it, right? This is at the heart of what we do. We come together to pray with a sense of desperation and urgency, believing that God alone can do this. I pray that in the coming year, midweek gatherings are marked by the church turning out to pray. And every time we pray, we are praying with a sense of urgency and desperation for God to, to do something in our midst. And even as you pray with the church, pray privately. Pray in your closet. Pray every morning that God would be merciful and bring about his salvation. Salvation has come to Israel in her darkest hour. We saw how unfaithful Saul was in chapter 13. Could it be that now that God has brought about salvation, that Saul is going to have a change of heart? No. 
No. We saw the salvation that God brings, and now, for the rest of 14, we're going to see the salvation that Saul is going to bring. And really, that's point number three. If point number two was how God saves us, point number three, how we try to save ourselves. This is, this is kind of how, how the king of the nations tries to save us. Look at chapter 14, verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. So God provides this tremendous victory, and now here comes Saul, the king, with all of his ego, and he makes this battle all about him. He sees his people growing weak, beginning to lag behind a little bit, and so he takes a religious oath, and he says that if anybody is distracted by food, rather than killing the Philistines, he will be under a curse. In other words, Saul is going to kill him. Saul wants to make sure he gets credit for this victory by imposing his will upon his people. And now, throughout all the long day and into the night, his men must pursue and fight the Philistines on empty stomachs. Well, we see, as we keep on reading, Jonathan doesn't hear about this oath. We see in verse 27, as they're walking through the forest, he eats some honey, which strengthens him and gives him energy. Someone tells him about his father's oath, his father's curse, and look at Jonathan's response there in verse 29. Then, then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Well, Israel fights and defeats the Philistines the rest of the day. And by the end, we see in verse 31 that the, the soldiers are tired. They are very faint, as it says. Look at verse 32. The people pounced on the spoil and took the sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are eat, sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And then look down at verse 35. And, and Saul built an altar to the Lord, it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Well, under Saul's leadership, far from blessing his people, far from securing victory, he leads them to temptation and sin. Uh, they end up breaking the dietary laws that Moses had given them to make them distinct from the nations. You know, it's interesting, right? They, they appoint this king like the nations. Now Israel is acting like the nations. And Saul, in classic fashion, blames the people in verse 33. In verse 34, he sets up this altar to properly slaughter and sacrifice the meat. You know, in the past, the patriarchs and kings set up altars for thanksgiving to God for a victory uh, in, in praise to God. But here, Saul sets one up just to make up for his own foolish curse. Well, the next day, Saul wants to continue his pursuit of the Philistines. But in verse 37, we see that God is no longer answering Saul. God has taken his oath seriously. And now they are under a curse. Somebody has violated uh, the oath, right? And now Saul is ready to put to death whoever has done that. Saul wants to get on with the battle. You know, he can't go to battle while under a curse. 
And so he's ready to kill whoever did that. Well, they cast lots, and Jonathan is revealed to be the one. He ate that honey, remember? Jonathan, the very one that brought about Israel's salvation. Look at verse 44. And Saul said, God do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. So there, Saul is ready to kill his own son. Hey, that's a great Father's Day text, isn't it? Don't be like Saul. <laughs> um, verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Isn't this amazing? Saul is so bent on sort of securing this victory, avenging his enemies, he's ready to kill his own son. He's ready to kill Jonathan, the, the very one through whom God brought about salvation. Saul, the one who imposed this rash oath, now Jonathan stands in his way of fulfilling his mission. You know, what kind of king is Saul? He is the, he's the kind of king who will do whatever it takes to get the job done, even murder his own son. Well, we see in verse 45, the people will not have it. They step in and they rescue Jonathan from his own father. And so the curse remains. God is not with Saul for his rash oath. And so in verse 46, rather than pursuing a decisive victory over the Philistines, Saul goes home. He knows that God is not with them. You know, as far as Israel was concerned, they probably were happy. They, they thought that Saul had won a great victory. But in fact, Jonathan's words in verse 29 are right. Right? Because of Saul's rash leadership, Israel ends up in a kind of stalemate with the Philistines. And the victory is not great. Verses 47 through 52 of chapter 14 conclude with a summary of Saul's reign. You know, with, with all these blunders, maybe you'd expect to see that Saul was a weak king, a struggling king, but that's not the case at all. He was a warrior, right? We see here, verse 47, wherever he turned, he routed them, he routed his enemies, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Right? What, what kind of king is Saul? He's a strong king. He's headstrong. He's decisive. He's a demanding leader. Right? He, he will lead his people by fear. He will use religion as a tool to accomplish his goals. He's the kind of leader who gets things done, no matter the cost. And he's willing to sacrifice his own people to do that even sacrifice his son. He's the kind of leader that the nations would applaud, that the nations would envy. He's a picture of us. And yet when we look at the overall narrative of what's going on here in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, we see that he is not the king that we need. He does not fear God. He does not trust God. He trusts in himself. No matter how successful he is in the short term, his reign will prove disastrous to God's people. 
This week, a, a prominent Southern Baptist pastor stood before the convention because his church was being examined for deviating from, his, from the Bible's teaching. And this is how he defended himself. I preached over 120 Harvest Crusades before I was 20. We baptized 56,631 new believers. We sent 20,869 members overseas to 197 nations. 78,157 members of our church signed our membership covenant. I had the privilege of training over 1.1 million pastors. Sorry, friends. That's more than all of our seminaries put together. In other words, how did he defend himself? He said, here I am doing all this stuff for Jesus. Look at all that I've accomplished. And you want to nitpick, me, nitpick about my orthodoxy? You know, maybe you know who I'm talking about, and there's so much that we can debate about his philosophy of ministry and numbers and a ministry like that. That's not the point. What I want to emphasize here is that results never justify compromising God's commands, right? Um, as Christians, we understand that the ends do not justify the means. Success is not measured by numerical results. Success is measured by faithfulness. I want to encourage you to read the latest Nine Marks journal. It's entitled Revival and Revivalism. Uh, there's a difference between God wrought revival and man manufactured revivalism. Now, we live in a Christianity that's awash in revivalism. Like Saul, there are Christian leaders who think that they can take matters into their own hands and use the world's strategies and techniques and methods to manufacture religious results. That's not how God brings salvation. God can use that in spite of it, but that's not how God commands us to behave. Even as we pray for revival, we have to be on guard against revivalism because that's the way of the world. You know, so much of the worst abuses in the church have been overlooked and buried simply because people said, look at all this good that's being done. Look at all this good fruit. Look at all these people coming forward. Surely if God is blessing this ministry, these charges and accusations are just distractions. They can't be true. We can't let those things distract us from our mission. No, friends. We, the ends do not justify the means. And this isn't just about churches and pastors. This is about every, every area of our lives, right? In our parenting, how often do we rely on shouting and anger and manipulation because that gets results, right? Rather than patient instruction, rather than humility and forgiveness. In the workplace, are we engaging in dirty office politics to get ahead? Or do we really believe that those who serve are the greatest in God's kingdom? Now, how often do we just go about our days doing what we think is right without any reference to God at all? Brothers and sisters, the way of the nations is not the way of our Lord. The ends do not justify the means. Success for the Christian is faithfulness. By the world's standards, Saul would have been a fine king. But in fact, Saul was a king like the nations. And so we need a better king. A king who fears God. A king who refuses to compromise even one bit with sin. A king who does not impose burdens on his people, but who lays his life down for them. 
And friends, if Saul points us to anyone, he points us to Christ, the anti-Saul. Right? In every way that Saul fails, Jesus succeeds. He is the faithful king. So the question for you this week is, will you trust him? Surrounded as you are by all kinds of imperfect leaders, filled with the dullness and temptations of your own hearts, seeing the decay of the church and society, will you trust in Jesus as the risen king who sits on the throne of the universe, as the king who is able to revive his people and to bring about salvation? Will you trust him? Let's pray. And even before I lead us in prayer, take some time now to to pray to God in your own words, to cry out to him for help. And then after a little bit, I'll close this. Our Heavenly Father, we confess our situation is dire. Lord, you have saved us. Lord, you have made us your people through faith in your Son. Lord, we are yours. And yet we confess, Lord, how easily we are led astray, how dull our hearts can be, how fearful we are. Lord, when we look around us, the state of your church is not any more encouraging. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would lead us. Oh, Lord, even as Christ has won the victory, even as he reigns, even as as he has routed all of our enemies, oh, Lord, awaken us to his victory. Lord, pull us out of these caves and rocks and tombs. Lord, help us to, to join in the fight that he is leading. Lord, that we may be bold like he is. Lord, that we may reject the, the lure of sin. Oh, God, let revival begin with us. Oh, God, do this for your glory, that you may work a great salvation throughout the nations. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.